Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 146 for May 29, 2008. Listener feedback number 42. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. This is Security Now. Time to talk about protecting yourself on your computer, online, with your credit card, and every other way possible with Mr. Steve Gibson. <laughs> hey, Steve. Hi, Leah. Great to be with you again. Good to talk to you. Now, let's see. Uh, this is an even-numbered episode, am I right? Yep, it is. 146. In fact, we are 10 weeks away from finishing our third year. Really? That It's been three years? Can you believe it? It's like, where is it gone? That is yeah. amazing. Well, you were the second show I did, right? I mean, after Twit. I think that's the case, although they were coming on pretty fast. Amber and I did one. I think you were first because I because I, I remember it, I, it hit me. I could do more than one of these. <laughs> what a fool that I am. And it, yeah, exactly. And if if you're doing one, then adding one or adding a second one is way less than twice as much work. So, right. You know, well, that's true. It's all incremental. Isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then turning on a video camera, incremental. The problem is I'm incrementing myself to death here. It's like <laughs> I can't take it anymore. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been watching you on camera. I think you you really like it. I have fun. I have fun. Leo studio routine. As long so. as people understand that sometimes I have to stand up and go somewhere and you know, but they seem to entertain themselves uh, quite well actually. <laughs> <laughs> there was what was oh it was last Friday that you guys uh, I think you you canceled your recording with Paul and I thought well I'll just see what's going on and I mean then the chat room is just going crazy yeah um, you know all by themselves so yeah. yeah they really don't need you yeah Paul was on uh, was on deadline for his book he couldn't uh, record on our normal Thursday so uh, he uh, he uh, he said can we do this tomorrow I got to get my chapter out. Yeah, they're perfectly happy in there. They, in fact, sometimes, yeah. a couple of times, just as an experiment, I've uh, turned off the video but le- left the uh, Stickam chat room going, and uh, it, there's usually 900 people in there all night long. Go figure. I don't understand it. I it's don't... the power of your celebrity. No, it's not me. No, and I think that's really an important point. It's the, it's the community, and I think that's what's really exciting about what's going on with the with the web in general is it's all about community now. It's not about... In the, you know, the old media, it was about celebrity. I think now it's about community. I like That's that. That's a very good point. Yeah, I really like that. So uh, we're going to talk today uh, uh, about a variety of things, as we always do on an even-numbered show. You've got you've put together, it looks like, uh, 12 great questions from all yep. over the world. Submitted by our, um, th- these are issues and, and mostly questions, some, some little info tidbits submitted by our listeners. Yeah, I shouldn't just call um, them questions. It's a variety of stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I did want to mention, many people mentioned that apparently I broke um, the URL for the feedback form. We've been saying grc.com slash feedback. Right. And 
and my system appends the .htm ah. to the to the end. I added the technology so that if a if a page were given without the .htm, it the server would add that. And right. something I did in the last couple of months broke that. And so it didn't it didn't limit our our listeners. They still managed to send 375 um, questions since I last pulled them two weeks ago. So, oh, that's but so several of them did mention that they had to add manually at the .htm. So by the time anyone hears this, I haven't had a chance to get to it because I just read that this morning. Um, it'll be fixed. So yeah. whatever it was I did, I will fix it. <laughs> it's a little scary that you don't know. Well. I've been playing around, um, working on some very cool technology that we'll be talking about on the show before long. Yeah. And uh, it involves classifying assets on the site for um, for the for the purpose of analyzing browsers' behavior in handling cookies, depending upon what type of asset it is. And so something in there I broke. Ah. And it's like, oh, okay, fine. I'll you know I'll go figure it out. Apache, which is the web server that I use and most uh, most Unix types use, has a very nice module called Mod Rewrite that handles this URL kind of massaging. You're using IIS, Microsoft's server. What does it do? Do you have it to do something no, special? No, it does nothing. I'm actually, all of this stuff I do shields up the e-commerce system, the perfect paper passwords, the the um, the perfect password generator. All of that is my own code. Oh, you're not so, running... But you're running IIS as your server, though. Basically, yes. I've I've got IIS, and they have an API called ISAPI, um, right. IIS API, or actually there's no two I's, it's just IS API, and it allows me to insert my own code in front of the web server and behind the web server. So essentially, I've completely encapsulated Microsoft's original web server in all in my own code all in assembly language of course and so all the stuff that the site does it does you know because i've added code for it right right well it's, that's interesting because it's so nice I, I use the apache apache mod rewrite all the time uh, you could do redirects with it but you could just take a url that's incoming for instance uh, a lot of urls on um, uh, things like wordpress and so forth are really ugly you know they have the dot php and they have you know queries and so forth and you can just massage those automatically on the fly to something looking much, much nicer. Right. And, and same thing with incoming uh, stuff. Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> enough of that. We're going to get to uh, updates uh, in the tech uh, security field, uh, you know, news stories. We're going to get to any um, errata that you want to correct. We have our questions, too. But before we do any of that, I want to say happy anniversary to Ian Fleming. It's, it's, it's the 100th anniversary of his birth may 28th tomorrow actually yesterday tomorrow as we record this yesterday as this airs he would have been 100 years old did you ever read the james bond novels i think when i when when they started i was too young but my dad was a big fan of mine too yeah yeah and, and I, I had all the books was, when I was a teenager. I read every one of those James Bond novels. I think Thunderball might have been the first one I saw. Great movie. And I, yeah. Or maybe From Russia with Love. I think From Russia with Love was the very first one made, wasn't was it? it? No, I, I think Dr. No. Oh, okay. But anyway, the books yep. I'm talking about. This is all by by way of leading into our Audible commercial. <laughs> Audible.com. Yes. Audible.com. <laughs> actually, it's audiblepodcast.com slash security now. If you want to get a free book, if you've, if you've not yet signed up for Audible, I'm not sure 
how many of the of those people there are left. We've we certainly told you about Audible long enough now. You should know about it. But if you've got a hankering for audio entertainment of a huge variety, please do me a favor. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, when you sign up, you get a credit towards a free book. And we try during the shows to recommend great books. And I just noticed that since yesterday was Ian Fleming's birthday, that Audible has a special a special section of all the novels of James Bond. Now, if you liked the movies, the novels are great. I mean, these kind of encapsulate an era. He was urbane, you know, shaken, not stirred. Let me play a little bit. The first one was a Casino Royale, which uh, actually I, it's not necessarily my favorite, but that came out in 1953. We're talking about the novels now. Then Live and Let Die, then Moonraker, Diamonds Are Forever. And of course, that's why they made the remake most recently of Casino Royale. Which is great, isn't it? Yes. It was, it's the, I hate to say it because I'm a Sean Connery fan. But that's the best Bond ever, is the new casino. It's, it's a really good yeah. one. Let me play a little bit of the uh, the audio. Wait a minute, where is it? Maybe they don't... I'll play a little bit of the audio from the original Casino Royale. Turn some knobs here. Before it'll, uh, before it'll play for you. Um, they have uh, Simon Vance reading it, who is, I think, one of their best uh, narrators at audible.com. Blackstone Audiobooks presents... Casino Royale by Ian oh, Fleming. Shoot, it starts right at the beginning. Chapter One The Secret Agent. Oh, this is actually a good part. The scent and smoke and sweat of a casino are nauseating at three in the morning. Then the sole erosion, produced by high gambling, a compost of greed and fear and nervous tension, becomes unbearable, and the senses awake and revolt from it. James Bond suddenly knew that he was tired. He always knew when his body or his mind had had enough, and he always acted on the knowledge. This helped him to avoid staleness and the sensual bluntness that breeds mistakes. I just love these. It's, it's a, really good. Oh, it's a different kind of Bond. Yeah. I mean, it's the real deal. This is the greatest stuff. So celebrate the 100th birthday of Ian Fleming, 100th anniversary of his birth, uh, with a James Bond novel. They have them all, and they're all wonderful. Uh, what a what a great time to, to to join Audible and get one of these for free. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We do thank Audible for their support, and we wish Ian, if he were here, a happy 100th birthday. You know, I'm going to go back and listen to them all. It's been so long. I read them, I think I was like 15. Yeah. And it kind of informed my whole life. Uh, for a while, I walked around, you know, with... <laughs> Peeking around corners yeah, and donkey cars. Yeah, well, I was more into the suaveness of it. Ah, yes. So are are there any uh, updates from last week? Anything you want to... Um... Always. I've always oh, got a whole always. grab bag of goodies. Yes, uh... Um, a, uh, somebody in the uh, Security Now news group that we have mentioned um, my comment about how when you disable the phishing filter on IE7, mm-hmm. it disables the display of the EV search, the extended validation certificates. Right. And it turns out that you can, you can, there is a way to disable the phishing filter and still have EV search displayed, which many people may want because they might want the benefit of knowing what's going on with um, EV search while, for whatever reason, not wanting the phishing filter to be enabled. In the advanced uh, settings of IE, there is an option down toward the, long, the end of the very long list in the last section 
called Check for Server Certificate Revocation. Uh-huh. And if you turn off the phishing filter, that's not checked. You need to check it and then restart that instance of IE7 and you get EV cert display back. So anyone can can get IE to show EV cert um, presence um, even if they've got the phishing filter disabled. Wait a minute. By uh, just say that manually. again. <laughs> that was the most arcane thing I've ever heard of. So you have uh, to... Who knows why, but that's that's what Microsoft has got it set up for. So there's an option in their advanced security configuration called yeah. check for certificate revocation. Okay, so, che- you, so have- you, you want to check for certificate revocation. Yes, and if you do, then you get EV certs working. So, so if you uncheck that, turn off phishing filter, then check it again, it'll come back uh, on. Yeah, or just turn off the phishing filter and then go there and, and, check, and- recheck it. Yes, Got and it. enable the checking for server certificate revocation. So the so the phishing filter just disables a bunch of things, including that. But you can re-enable that one feature. Yeah, actually, I didn't verify whether the phishing filter changes the setting of that. It may be that it's not normally turned on. The phishing filter also enables EV certs. What I do know is that with the phishing filter off, and you enable the checking for server certificate revocation, yeah. you got EV cert display on IE. Got it. Got it. Um, also, I was talking with some bit of excitement about Service Pack 3 of XP last week, mm-hmm. and I have been bitten by it, and my tech support guy, Greg, has been bitten by it. I actually had to remove it from this main, brand-new, recently-built really? system of mine because twice, and that's all it took, in the day after I installed Service Pack 3, my start menu died, oh. which I've never had happen before. That's a weird I, thing, yeah. I could press the start button, and up comes the menu, but it was completely dead. That is, mousing over and clicking and things, nothing happened. And in several cases, I mean, I've put up with it briefly. I could log out and log back in again, and it would bring it back to life. But it's like, oh, okay, this is... <laughs> This is ridiculous. So I just backed out of Service Pack 3, and that was last week, and it hasn't happened again. From a, so security, does, from a security standpoint, is there any negative to doing that? I mean, are you now going to be more vulnerable? Well, it's not clear what's going on with Service Pack 3. They, when, you, when you use Windows Update, you still do all the pre-Service Pack 3 updates, and then it, said, it gives you a new version of the Windows Genuine Validation Tool, and then that says, oh, we recommend you install Service Pack 3. So it's like, oh, good. You know, and I have had people say that even that non-network install, where it says it's only going to be 66 megs, actually downloads the whole thing. Oh, that's so, interesting. So you still get a huge file download. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's uh. a, my, well, anyway, so what I'm going to do is, and I wanted to bring this up to our listeners because they may want to consider this too, when, I, when this happened, I did a little bit of Googling, and lots of people are having problems with Service Pack 3. Mm. Just weird sorts of things. Like, I, I ran across one where somebody's control panel applet, you know, doesn't run after installing Service Pack 3. Took it out, and it's back again. So it's look like, looking like Microsoft is having some problems with this Service Pack. And my feeling is, let's give it a month, you yeah. know, and they may be patching the Service Pack. What's discouraging is this is a new machine that you're having trouble with. I mean, it's not like you have a lot of crap on it, right? 
Right. It's brand new, no age on it at all. And again, I took off, I took out Service Pack 3, and now it's just been behaving itself just fine. Well, now we know what it is. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And speaking of the PayPal EV certificate, PayPal made a mistake, which um, put them actually in, the, in a spotlight they didn't want, which was they had a cross-site scripting error on their EV SSL enhanced oh, no. page. And um, so I just, I thought it was sort of uh, an interesting little gotcha because, you know, they've, they, they put out a press release a couple of weeks ago saying that non EV capable browsers were soon not going to be welcome at PayPal. And that generated a bunch of furor. And so oh, they yeah. sort of backpedaled from that a little bit said, well, no, no, no. We would just prefer that you used EV enhanced browsers because, you know, they're working to promote this whole notion. Well, here they are with this green bar in, you know, this green URL. And this is on pages where there's a demonstrated cross-site scripting vulnerability. And essentially what this means is by leveraging that, you can you can take somebody to essentially to a different server that still shows the green PayPal URL. Thanks to this cross-site scripting wow. vulnerability. So, wow. so the point is that that it's important to understand that the fact that you've got the green bar, the the green URL, the EV you know validation says nothing about the way the site works. It just says. Oh, you know, we paid more for our certificate and we were checked out more and the certificate issuer checked out more in terms of who you are, not in terms of your security. Exactly. Exactly. And so in this case you see a bit of a bit of a black eye. Yeah. No kidding. Especially then, since they were going to require it. <laughs> exactly. And then the other little interesting bit of news is there is now an unpatched vulnerability in Apple's current version of iCal, their calendaring program, Apple was informed of this by a security research group back in January. Mm. And they've been going back and forth and back and forth. And the security group has been getting frustrated with Apple not fixing this thing. One of them is a remote, a remote execution vulnerability such that if you were to open an iCal file by clicking on a link that you received in email, or if somehow iCal, this iCal um, file is displayed, there's a buffer overrun that allows code, a code exploit to be hmm. executed. And so finally last week, the security company said, okay, we're tired of you know, waiting for you. Apple did say that they would be patched by the end of April and then didn't patch it. So this group went public hmm. with the exploits. Which has you know not made Apple happy, and but but I mean I can understand their position. It's like okay, the longer this known hole stays open, the more opportunity there is for exploitation. I mean this is this is what we've been putting up with over on the Windows side, of course, for for quite a while. I remember talking so, to uh, to uh, Woo Woo, one of the security uh, firms that does this, and they knew about a vulnerability in Windows that had been going on for a year. I think it's not unusual for these to go on for quite some time. That's true. And I guess in, in, in this case, Apple was saying, look, we're going to get this patch. It'll be patched by the end of April. And that was after many, many prior 
excuses and delays and and broken promises. So finally, these guys just got fed up and yeah. said, "Okay, yeah. good luck." Uh, you know, we, the, if, if the only way to put pressure on you to really get this fixed is by going public, we try to do it the right way, the responsible disclosure way, and we're tired of waiting. Right, right. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, uh, I'm sure there's a reason why Apple didn't put it out. Probably there's something wrong with the patch, right? Or the patch caused more problems. This does put a lot of pressure on you to, to do something now, though, because the hackers know about it. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I had a, a fun um, Spinrite story, another failure, actually, since I sort of we're on a roll doing Spinrite failures. Um, a listener by the name of Alex Walters um, wrote, and he said, Spinrite failed me, but it's NVIDIA's fault. Hmm. And I thought, huh, what? And so he says, well, I, the, the subject of the email is somewhat deceptive. It's likely not the video chipset's fault, but I digress. A little while back, SMART, that it does S-M-A-R-T, the, the, you know, the self-monitoring and analysis reporting technology um, that are built into drives started to give me the dreaded backup your data now error. Now he, now he says, I'm not a dumb person, but I hadn't backed up my data on that drive in some seven and a half years. Huh. I was quite interested in backing up that data. That's a long, so I, that's a long time. It's a long time. <laughs> wow. So he says that I had, uh, he, he says, um, I was quite interested in backing up that data. So I booted up and tried to copy the data that I wanted off onto a fresh 500 gig external drive that I have had for nearly as long as it's been since I last backed up. It all went fine and good till I got to my brother's basic combat training graduation photos where windows could not read the data. The horror, he says. So, I shut down and booted to my Spinrite floppy. He says, friends, I have a floppy drive. How novel. Um, and then he says, I let it run and went to take a shower. No, not with the computer. He says, when I came back, the computer was dead. The video card ate my machine. So then he says, cut to one month later. I have rebuilt my machine totally. I hooked up the old drive and ran Spinrite, and it clicked along until it had recovered everything. Yeah. Well, well, everything that I wanted, at least. It's good to know that when everything in my machine wants to die, Spinrite can breathe enough life into my hard drive to safely recover. Thanks, Steve. Signed, Alex. Happy news. So good, good, uh, good. Not quite a a Spinrite failed me, but that's what his subject line <laughs> said. So. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into the meat of the matter. I have some very good questions for you from our uh, listeners. Are you ready to answer a few? You bet. All right, let's start with number one listener, Steve, in quotes, in Florida, notes, we're not out of luck. He says, Steve, during last week's Security Now episode, talking about XP's new service pack three, you said, but I don't know what happens if you push past that and effectively refuse to download service pack three, which, in fact, we now know that Steve won't do. <laughs> Last patch Tuesday, I hooked up to Windows Update. I was, of course, presented with the Service Pack 3 download option. However, there was some small print down below which said something to the effect that even if you choose not to install Service Pack 3 now, you may still need some updates. And there was a little button over on the right to click if you don't want to install SP3. You click that, you get the usual menu of patches and updates for Service Pack 2 uh, XP as usual, which I did. And everyone else can and probably should. So, in other words, you can get these critical updates even if you don't install Service Pack 3. 
Yeah, I don't know what Microsoft's going to do about this. Long the, term, it may not work, right? S- Service Pack 2 gave you the option of not doing a backup. And I am really glad that Service Pack 3 forces you to keep a, basically, to keep all the uninstall files around. Of course, it's a huge blob on your hard drive, but, you know, I needed that in order to back out of Service Pack 3. Right. So now I'm feeling, in retrospect, like I haven't taken my own advice by, you know, <laughs> waiting a while for right. these Service Packs, and any new Service Pack, to settle down before I just jump right into it, because um, Service Pack 3 is causing people problems, and not just people with AMD processors. I don't, I've got regular, genuine Intel, you know, a quad-core chip in there, and you know, my start menu died. It's like, uh, I need my start menu. You're referring to that well-known problem with AMD processors, which is even more of a showstopper. Right. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is, as far as I can tell, Vista Service Pack 1 has not been a problem for most users. Don't know why not, but... Yeah, Vista did something wacky on a machine that I have, too. I was, oh. I was using it um, to do some experiments last week, and they updated two... Um, it, there were two updates that Microsoft Update installed... Now it won't shut down. Ugh. It it gives me the little spinning wheel and then goes to a blue screen. It's like, oh, that's fun. That's not. That's that's nice. That's like fine. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks a lot, Microsoft. Johnny G in BC, Canada, mentions the Debian Ubuntu Linux Open SSL mistake, which I'm not familiar with, but I'm sure I'm going to learn about right now. Steve, I realize this is a simple mistake that has more or less been corrected with the patch now, but since you were quoted in the article. I was curious as to what you think about all this. I look forward to your thoughts on the whole problem and possible problems with open source in the future. What happened? Oh, Leo. Uh, first of all, I want to, I, although I chose this one po- this one note from, from Johnny G, many of our listeners said, hey, why aren't you talking about this horrible mistake in OpenSSL that the Debian guys made? And many people wrote. So I thought, well, yeah, I mean, okay. Let's talk good. about it. Yeah. Now is the time. We, we're in our Q&A episode. Right. Okay, so get this. Back in September of 2006, mm-hmm. so, you know, what, a year and a half ago, um, the Debian guys ran a program over their source code called Valgrind and another one called Purify. These are automated tools designed to check the security uh, and like it's sort of like a an, an advanced form of lint which you know lint is a is a tool that's been around forever that sort of like helps people with their c programming finds things like uninitialized variables right, right. and and you know sort of questionable syntax in code so this thing is, it purports to be this valgrind and purify um, you know sort of a higher level version of that well it finds a, a block of memory which has been which has never been initialized it's just this uninitialized block of memory it looks around through the source code can't find anywhere that any code is like you know initializing it to zeros or or which is typical mm-hmm. and so it flags this as something that needs to be fixed right so um the the programmers didn't really understand the code so they made some changes which caused some errors, and then they ended up com- commenting out a critical aspect of the random number generator in the OpenSSL oh. package oh. in Debian, 
in September of 2006. And this affects the offshoots from Debian like Ubuntu. Oh, dear. So, okay, get this. The open SSL generator, the random number generator, is, as you would expect, been a lot of thoughts been given to it. Right. That block of memory was uninitialized on purpose to be just an, some more random stuff oh. that's, that's probably... Now, see, you can't really count on it being random every time because, as we'll remember from when we were talking about um, uh, the, the freezing your RAM stuff, um, in general, memory that you don't initialize tends to come up in the same state from one time to another. But that's all it's probably going to be unique per machine. Mm-hmm. So it's just sort of and believe me, that's not the only thing they were doing. They do things like like microscopic timing analysis of the hard drive to get speed variations, the mouse movements, you know, all kinds of stuff is all fed into the pseudo random number generator, which is which is the heart of OpenSSL used to generate, for example, all of the security certificates that it produces. So, unfortunately, what these guys did is they commented essentially all of that out so that the only thing left was taking the process ID. So, since September of 06, Debian and Ubuntu and any other derivatives, there are a couple others, have had a seriously broken pseudo-random number generator in the OpenSSL package such that there were only... Now, okay, process IDs are 15 bits in, in, in Linux. Mm-hmm. So that's 32768. There were only 32K oh possible keys. Okay. And they've been brute-forced. They've been reverse-engineered. There are, and tools are beginning to surface. So, well, so it, they, it's using the process ID as a seed, or is it using it as a key? Well, it uses it as a seed for the random number. Oh, generator. but if you know the seed, you can you can tell what the number is going that it's going to generate will be. Well, and the and the the developer's intention, the original coder's intention, was to use all of this stuff as the seed. A, a this, variety the, of things, yeah. All all that other stuff, yeah. including this little patch of un it, deliberately uninitialized RAM. Right. Just to you know, throw some more entropy into the seed generator. So, right. so what happened was, as a consequence of of this so-called you know, let's find security bugs, automated software that flagged the problem. The guys didn't really understand what the code was. That was they the co- consequence, by the way, is somebody modifying code he didn't understand. Yes, and commented out everything except using the process ID, Stupid. which means there's only 32k possible seeds right. Right. for the pseudo random number generator. So it Oops. turns out that you know the bottom line is the takeaway is any certificates which you are depending upon for example SSH certs anyone who who made a certificate pair using Debian and Ubuntu since September 06 when this happened has a bogus essentially a bogus certificate Jeez. that and there are already hacks that are out there. There, there is a test that's available to see whether you've got one of the bad certificates. Mm. So I just wanted to, you know, for for those listeners who this affects, 
You probably know who you are. Um, if you, I mean, it's easy to find information about this. This is only about two weeks old. So, it, of course, it has been immediately fixed. So you're going to want to you're going to want to update your OpenSSL. You know, recompile it or or get the new package from Debian. Uh, and if you've generated any certificates in the last couple of years for any purpose, you need to consider them as really exploitable. Who uh, who discovered this, and how did they discover it? I don't remember who they, it was. A security researcher, um, Luciano Bello, uh, is the guy who found it. And our our good old friend H. D. Moore at Metasploit has got a a an extensive page on it, and already writing toys to exploit this problem. Wow! Wow! So it's now bad. now your your uh, Johnny G says uh, you know. What are the possible problems with open source in the future? I think what he's saying is, with open source, you've got people potentially modifying code that they don't understand. I mean, I think there's a a breakdown in the process here because you shouldn't be able to modify um, the pseudo number random generators. You know, it's a library, I would guess. You shouldn't be able well, to modify that. Yeah, yeah. They 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 clearly thought they were doing the right, right. thing oh, by yeah. running this security tool over their code. And what they did, of course, is they 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 forked the software right. so so that now they're off on their own and the open SSL groups. I mean, there there have been a number of other things that have been fixed in open SSL. So the proper process then. would be to say, hey, we ran this on open SSL and go to the open SSL group and say, hey, what's the deal? Right. Instead of forking the code, there was the mistake and, and uh, saying and we're going to fix I, I, it. Yeah, I, I I did read a, uh, some some uh, somewhere there were some comments by the Open SSL people, yeah. and they said they said, well, after we got through literally rolling around on the floor laughing uh, at what this was, you know, at, at what had been done to our deliberately carefully created yes. super yes. high quality pseudo random number generator code, we would have explained that commenting that line out was yeah, a bad thing to do. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, we've all learned our lesson here. I don't. I think, in a way, this this it could be. I, I guess ascribed to a, 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 a structural problem with open source. But I think, in another way, it, it's very clear that if the if the proper procedures are followed, it isn't a problem. And the fact that the security researcher found it has something to do with the fact that it's open source. Had it been a had it, had it Ubuntu been a closed source project or Debian been a closed source project, this might happen. You never know. Yeah. Because you wouldn't be able to see what what's going on. Yeah. Interesting. Wow, really interesting. Dave in Grand Rapids, Michigan, he's worried about losing his YubiKey. You know, it's funny. I was just looking for my YubiKey and I misplaced it. So <laughs> he says, Steve, maybe I've misunderstood your description of the YubiKey, but it sounds like the only item needed for authentication is the YubiKey and not even a username or password. So if a YubiKey is lost and found by someone else at your, at your YubiKey using corporation, the only thing they'd have to do is log on as you or to log on as you would be to plug it in and press the button this seems like a huge flaw or does a user still need to type a username and in, uh, in the password field press the button thus entering the one-time password there there's been a lot of confusion um that that i guess i'm responsible for because i got so i don't think so i remember you saying it right well i got so carried away with how cool this was i the, the the confusion is that many people have said oh okay i want one now what do I do? Right. That is, you know, it, it's it's not. That an, is your it's, fault, it's, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not an end user tool 
in the same way, for example, that the PayPal football is, or I should say that the reason the PayPal football is an end user tool is it's offered by PayPal who supports it. And so immediately upon getting it, you've got something to do with it. The YubiKey is a cool technology. So it's sort of like, it's more like a wholesale rather than a retail technology. Now, so I think you implied, though, that I could use it with, uh, with Yubico as an open ID key. You is absolutely right? can. So okay. they've got an open ID server. There's also an interesting site called mashedlife.com that is YubiKey enabled. And they're a, they're a um, sort of a third-party password and website logon provider. They've got some, a, a sort of a clever technology that works with a YubiKey. So the point I wanted to make to Dave when he says, okay, you know, uh, if I only need the YubiKey, what if somebody else gets it? It was like, right. yes. Um, it's not meant to be anything other than one additional very cool factor in a multi-factor system. Yeah, then so, that you were clear about, I think. Yeah, so you yeah. absolutely, someone could misdesign a system, and just because you've, you're using a YubiKey doesn't mean that the system is going to be secure because everything else has to be secure. I mean, you know, you, you again, you absolutely want a, some, uh, a, a something you know to be part of something you have so that, you know, there's a passphrase that says, okay, I am me, right. and you plug the key in, and it's like, and look what I have. Right. So, so again, it's, 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 we, I believe this thing is, is going to take off, and there will be people who are using the YubiKey. I mean, uh, I know from Stina, for example, that, um, that I think I, she told us during the podcast that she's received queries from universities that want to give one of these to Great every idea. single student and faculty yeah. member. Yeah. And so it would be, you know, something that they use to log on to, you know, terminals and things around, around campus. And so, you know, so there, these kids are going to get these and go, wow, that's interesting. Never seen one of these before, not knowing how much more it is right. because, you know, essentially the IT department will provide all the backend infrastructure for it. So if I, so I have, I'm holding my YubiKey right now for those of us watching, those of you watching. I'm, I'm, I'm holding mine too. Lee. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> by it. So this is something that, 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 that Stina sent to us, but so could can I use this as a, with Yubico as an open ID provider and it would do everything. I, I mean, in other words, can they become a, a provider for me and so I can use it standalone or do I need to kind oh, of do no just... absolutely they have an open ID server okay. and and you could use them as your open ID authenticator and what would that look like I would have still have to enter my login and my password right yes you uh, at any at any open ID site you would be you, you would be giving them your username and password well uh, okay you would you'd be you'd give them whatever it is that site wants because well, well I'll give again, you an example. When I log into uh, uh, a site that uses OpenID, I click the OpenID link. They say, okay, what's your OpenID provider? You give them a web page uh, that is an OpenID provider. So you'd give them Yubico.com. Then you're pulled to Yubico where you give whatever Yubico requires. In this case, I presume it would be a username, password, and the YubiKey. Yes, I don't know. Um, don't know. It just depends I've what not, they do. I've not, I've not looked at that. Right, right. But just, I know that they have an OpenID facility that is there and free and will always be free. Right. So so somebody with a YubiKey could who was 
getting into OpenID could use Yubico's OpenID service. Great, great. Yeah. And, and presumably Yubico's implementing it as you would recommend, which is multi-factor authentication, name, password, and then the YubiKey. Maybe, but they wouldn't have to. I mean, all they're really saying is, I mean, are they saying this is you? Yes. Or are they saying you, you know, you have a YubiKey because the, the, the site that you're logging into could also require username and password. Well, and... that's the idea of OpenID is it bypasses that. Okay. So you're, with OpenID, the whole point of OpenID, we use it, we can use it on twit.tv, for instance. You go to twit.tv and either provide the credentials we have given you or say, no, 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 I, uh, I want to use my OpenID credentials. At that which point you're sent to the OpenID provider who verifies your identity. You're, you're right, your entire identity, and right. then makes the assertion that you know, this really them. is you. Right. And then I, you go get sent back to twit.tv, which says, okay, I know you're you. Do you want to set up an account now using this uh, identity? In other words, right. should, should, this, should this identity I, be trusted? And so that's, that's the process for OpenID. So, yeah, they would need to do some identity, identity validation. Right. Yeah. Kyle Hasegawa in uh, Tokyo, Japan, has a tip and a link for me. Steve, he says, this one's actually for Leo. Leo mentioned he was looking for a tool to test his server against attacks. I have more information on our hack attack, by the way. Fascinating story. I'll tell you about that in a second. I use these two Firefox add-ons for security testing. Found them to be very good. They're from securitycompass.com slash exploitme. <laughs> I like that. That's .shtml. The first is xssme, which is brutally yet safely slams your site with a torrent of XSS attacks. Well, I don't even know what those are. Cross-site scripting. Oh, cross-site scripting. Okay. Yep. The second is a SQL inject me, which does the same thing except with SQL injections. After the test, the tools provide in-depth reports about your site's security, at least for those two vulnerabilities. Cool, huh? I've run these against my Drupal 6.2 site as well as my own homebrew websites. I'm glad to say they all passed. Probably a good idea to limit testing to your own sites to avoid a visit from your local FBI agents. Yeah, actually, these are these are you know we we've we've talked about cross-site scripting right. and about SQL you know SQL injection attacks. Right. These are two tests that do a whole ton of, for example, cross-site scripting script exploits. Right. So I mean, it really hammers your your page the the, the pages that you give it with all kinds of attempts to to perform SQL injection and cross-site scripting attacks. Right, right. Well, in my case, it was neither. So okay. I found out what happened. Are you curious? Do you want to know the yeah, story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it took me a little while to figure out where the vulnerability was, and it was me. I was the, I was the vulnerability. I was the stupid person. So what, what happened, um, uh, I, I, was, it, it, I guess the hacker sent me another note. By the way, he said, I'm not Brazilian. I don't speak English, but I'm not Brazilian, so we don't know where he's from. Uh, but he posted on my blog, he posted a comment saying, you know, uh, you should harden your site. And if you want some help, give me a, send me an email, uh, and later sent me a note saying, well, this is how I got in. Uh, I had posted, you know, I have, you have a site a kind of a private site, uh, on leoville.com, Steve, where we put security now so you can download it. Sure. It's not hidden by anything but obscurity. It's just, a, it's, it's almost like an open directory, except a directory, except there's some PHP code managing it. So you can go there and you can see if there's uh, the new files are there and download them. I have several of those. They're not websites. They're they're not FTP exactly. They're just kind of file uh, storage places for various people. I put my commercials up there for the radio shows and stuff. On one and only one of them, and I enabled a feature that allows people to upload files. Oh, dumb. Ooh. 
yeah. yeah. And it turns out that the folder it gets uploaded to, the incoming folder, I set, I either didn't set permissions on or set them incorrectly to allow uh, a script in there to be executed. So all the hacker had to do is he uploaded a script, which I found. In fact, I have. And at some point, I'd like to go through it. I want to parse through it uh, on camera. Uh, and maybe you can be on when we do that. And it's PHP code, but go through it and show exactly what the, what the script does. It's very interesting. It's not a very well-written script, by the way. But it's a, it's an interesting script. It <laughs> did the job. Did I the guess. job because what it does is it looks for all their vulnerabilities on the server. It looks for open directories, uh, files it can download, particularly looking for configuration files. So apparently, what it found was a directory with a, a configuration file it could download that had a, a, a SQL, my SQL password in it. Ooh, and that's what that's how he got in. And it, there were only two of the sites on that server. There are about five sites on that server, but only two of them um, were uh, unprotected enough that he could zap them. The rest of them were hardened. Uh, so I've I since found that. That's, I think that's a pretty good hack, Leo. Well, it was yes, it's a great hack. And I think probably not great, but I think what the the, the guy did was he's going around. Uh, he probably has an automated tool looking for open directories that he can upload to and execute. And he found one. Uh, foolish of me to leave that there. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I certainly know that's a vulnerability. And uh, but but it did give me and it's going to be fun. We'll go through this little C9 script that he wrote or he got probably uh, from elsewhere. And show how it works. So it'll be a good kind of an extra security episode we'll do on Twit Live at some point. Yeah, cool. Anyway, these tests would not have found that. It was too stupid of a vulnerability for these tests. John in Moncton, New Brunswick, wants to know about the effectiveness of MAC address filtering. Not Macintosh, but MAC, MAC address filtering. My wireless network has the ability to restrict access by MAC address. How secure is this if I'm behind a NAT router? It would seem to me that as long as a MAC can't be hacked or faked this is pretty secure but is it could it really be that easy we've we've talked about this before i know that some of our listeners are kind of rolling their eyes thinking oh steve you know why are we going to go over this again uh, the reason is it keeps coming up and major tech support uh uh people keep telling keep recommending it keep exactly keep recommending it as if this oh just use mac address filtering oh so it'll make you completely secure it it absolutely won't so so let me i just i won't take take too much time but i want to explain to john and any other listeners who who might be wondering if that solves a problem why it doesn't right the reason is that the mac address is in the clear even if you've got encryption working in your network the mac address has to be in the clear because it's sort of like the outer the outer address for the packets for any endpoints on an ethernet ethernet by definition uses 48-bit mac addresses and and that's how the packet gets to where it's going on the network we should mention that every network device has a unique 48-bit address called a mac address right yeah and and, and the, it's it's interestingly guaranteed the way they guaranteed to be unique is that that 48 bits is divided into two pieces 24 bits each one is a manufacturer mm-hmm. serial number and then the other is a manufacturer's serial number meaning that manuf- each manufacturer gets its own unique 24 bit id and then and then they increment the other 24 bits so that so that together those are guaranteed to be unique 48 bits unless they make and, more than 14 million cards 
Yes. Um, or whatever so, that number is. I don't know. And, and you can always get another manufacturer ID. So that's right. that's not a problem. And, and in the worst case, if you had a LAN that had identical MAC addresses, you would immediately get various sorts of alerts from your equipment saying that there's a Mac adapter collision. An adapter would say, wait a minute, there's somebody else on this network with the same Mac address as I. In the same way that, I mean, those of us who configure IPs manually have probably had IP collisions before, right, right. where you get a dialogue saying, wait a minute, some, some other machine on. on the LAN right. has the same IP as I do. So, you know, it's just like, oops, well, we can't use that card, that, you know, that LAN card on this network because by some bizarre coincidence there's been a collision and that can happen because users in more recent adapters are able to change the mac address they're able to set it to be whatever they want to so it's not always hardwired into that's the um, key he into he realizes he says it would seem to me that as long as a mac can't be hacked or fake this is pretty secure true but macs can be spoofed well, they they, have, they can be spoofed that way, but the point is, in a wireless network, if you if you just turn on a sniffer, right. you're going to see all the MAC addresses of all the machines on the network, and then and you so, can set your card to be one of those. Exactly, it's right. trivial to spoof. So, right. so where MAC filtering is good is if you want to prevent inadvertent uh-huh. use of your network. So, for example. If for if say that you for whatever reason you cannot secure your network, you can't use WEP right. or you can't use WPA. No one really wants to use WEP because it can now be cracked in about a minute. So if for some reason you can't use WPA because, for example, you know you've got friends coming over all the time, or um, you you've got some equipment that that doesn't yet support WPA, the 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 good Wi-Fi encryption. It's like okay, well. If for some reason you have to have your network not encrypted, well, the, the the problem is that anybody within range will see your network listed and, and just connect to it. Right. So, so the one thing, well, in fact, many people connect inadvertently. They just turn their computer on. It finds the strongest signal. Well, that if looks got, good. Yeah, I'll take you know, that one. If you've got a good, strong signal, right. people will be using your network right. without your knowledge or permission. Right. So MAC address filtering is useful if you wanted to prevent that kind of sort of like soft, uh, you wanted to put up a soft barrier to 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 inadvertent use of your network, mm-hmm. but anybody who knew what they were doing could easily use your network, despite the fact that you're using MAC address filtering. So it's just it's just not secure. WPA is the only solution using a strong password. And to save us another email. Same thing with SSID hiding. Doesn't do a thing. Right. Because like the MAC address, the SSID is sent all the time in the clear. Right. You got to encrypt. You got to. Tom Terrific worries that if he goes to someone's PC, something might come to his. (laughs) He says, hi, Steve. I'm having more and more friends wanting me to work on their computer. So I thought it'd be nice to be able to look at their computer remotely via go to my PC or something similar. So it wouldn't have to be driving all over the place or trying to diagnose over the phone. My question is, if their computer's filled with malware, viruses, etc., is there any way I could be infected by connecting them remotely? Thanks, and keep up the good work. Can- I thought that was a really interesting and, and good question. I had never thought of that. Now, okay, in a perfect world, there, it, it, that would be completely safe. because You're not really the- running anything on your system. You're just, it's a window into their system, right? 
Exactly. Essentially, you are you're seeing their video and you are taking over their mouse and keyboard. Right. So it's purely a remote I.O. sort of deal. But we know it's not a perfect world. <laughs> In fact, it's oh, substantially no. less than perfect. Oh, no. Tell seeming, me. Seeming Tell less me. perfect every day. Oh, no. So if, for example, there were a vulnerability in whatever remote communication right. software you were using and malware knew about that, it would be very possible for the malware to detect that you had connected using, you know, VNC, go to my PC, remote desktop, you know, whatever application and exploit a known problem in order to cause a buffer overrun at your end of the connection. So anytime you're having a conversation with another computer, there's always that potential, no matter what protocols you're using. Yes. So, so what I would do if I were a person who was going to be, you know, sort of habitually connecting to probably infected remote machines is that this is definitely somewhere you'd want to do that in a VM at your end. Oh, so you good so idea. you'd fire up a virtual machine machine session. Right. You'd use that virtual session to connect to their machine, and that would probably. I mean, again, I'm maybe being overly cautious in general it's not a problem but again it's like you know it's not a problem until it becomes a problem well there have been problems i remember with rpc the the windows remote protocol uh security the man in the middle attacks things like that so it's certainly something to be aware of it's not like these things are are invulnerable correct Perfectly and so again it, it is it's something to be aware of and i would i would say putting yourself in a virtual machine so that only the virtual machine right. might have a problem. If something crawled back up the connection into your machine, you know, that's really probably safe enough. When I brought Andy Dawn's computer in here last week and she had complained about spyware, I said, Oh, bring it up. We'll see if we can fix it. Before I connected it to my network, I made sure it was clean. I wasn't, even though we run firewalls locally, you know, uh, on all the machines, windows firewall or the Mac firewall, I wasn't going to connect it to my LAN. I'll tell you, Leo, I don't let any foreign machine no. ever touch my no. network. No, we just, just don't. No. Well, I did eventually because I cleaned it up, re basically reinstalled Windows, ah, completely okay. scanned it. Once I was fairly, again, there's no no perfect answer, but once I was pretty sure I was clean, I was. I did I did put it on there just so I could update it. Yeah, I, I have a cable modem here that I have nothing else connected to. That's a to. good idea. And when any when anyone is over who wants to like you know check in, well, I mean even you know my buddy Mark Thompson, Analog X, and I right. mean he's he brought a laptop with him, and it's like uh sorry, I mean and he and he completely understood. Oh, I'm sure he I did. I said I'm happy to let you use this cable modem that nothing else is connected to, but you know I just you know my own internal network is just it just you know sacrosanct. Let me get this straight. You have a cable modem just for your guests. Yeah. <laughs> That's taking it seriously. <laughs> but we have four connections in here, and I could dedicate, certainly dedicate one. I mean, there's one dedicated to Skype. There's it's nothing else. Well, of course, everything's on the LAN, though, because uh, even the even the Skype machine has two Ethernet connections. One yeah, for the there you go. There's yeah, a bridge. It has yep. to be because uh, that's how we can see the screen on the TriCaster. So yeah, we're always at risk. I'll have to make a um, and people are going to come in here and use our Wi-Fi. So that's where would it work then to have the that triangular Wi-Fi, you know, the three three Wi-Fi connection thing. A, a three router connection, yes, yeah. that's absolute security. Okay, so maybe I'll have to end up doing that. Ay, ay, ay. 
Oscar Aguirre in uh, Gardena, California, wonders about URL file extensions. Hi, Steve. Thanks for the constant updates you provide for the security conscious. I eagerly listen every week. Hi, Oscar. Glad to have you. Knowing I'll learn something new, Steve and Leo will help me understand. Question. I'm currently house hunting in Glendale, California. My realtor provided me with a printout with home listings. The printout had the following page at the bottom of the path. Uh, bottom, following path at the bottom of the page. This is pretty common in uh, when you print a web page, you'll get the URL of the page. And sort it of ends, down in the footer. Yeah, in the footer. The page. Yeah. And it ends with mgrqispi.dll. I'd never seen a DLL file exposed to the user on a printout. I googled that uh, DLL file, realized that numerous hits were listing the same file and the scripts path. Should I be concerned about the home listing web server displaying paths to DLL files? Maybe I should import, inform my realtor or work with another realty group whose web server doesn't show show their DLLs. Thanks again for the inspiration you provide for us security software folks. I thought this was a great question, and it 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 bears on really for all of our listeners because we're seeing a a proliferation of different file extensions on pages. Um, interestingly enough, if you use Shields Up, you see. NE dot DLL. Uh-huh. NE stands for Net Engine, and that's the thing I was talking about earlier in this show. It's, it is the container for all of my assembly language code, the, the front end filter and the back end um, extensions to the server is a DLL. Um, you know, we're seeing PHP. Many people have seen, for example, PL for Perl. Mm-hmm. The original was CGI. So you'd see, you know, right. something blah, 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 dot CGI. Right. So, so those have all been file extensions of either executable or interpreted code. So when you see dot HTM, HTML, SHTML, as we saw before. You, you may know, see dot EXE even sometimes. Yeah, you know, and sometimes you'll see an XE. So, yeah. so some of, you know, if, if you see HTM or HTML, um, then those are actual text files. But, and for example, ASP now, Active Server Pages, is, is one of Microsoft's technologies. So, so you can either have scripts which are interpreted by some executable code, or you can actually have the executable program itself, which is typically what you had in, in, in the original .cgi type of, of you know, original web extensions, and so there's anyway, the point is that many of these different file extensions are are going to be seen in the future more even than we see now. But there's nothing about a dot DLL or an XE should put anyone off. It's just the way these people have implemented their, you know, their Web 2.0 functionality. Although and this gets back to our conversation a little earlier, it's probably a good practice from the point of view of the web guy, to use mod rewrite or some sort of URL modification technology to hide that information. I mean, I don't think it's a great, it's not, you know, it's, it's again, security through obscurity, but it's not a bad idea to say, you know, not let them know what's running in the background there. If there, if there is a flaw, for instance, in that DNA DLL, they'll, they'll know, they know how to attack it. That's a very good point. For example, um, Oscar says he Googled that file name and found lots of instances where it was being used. So he was able to use Google to find all of these sites using that file. If a problem were found in that file, 
And then, unfortunately, this is how search engines are being used now in order to find other sites that can be exploited right. in, in the same fashion. Right. So you're right. Yeah. And, and in most servers, that's a fairly easy thing to do to, do to hide those, uh, those uh, URLs. Well, and for example, in mine, when, when, when you go grc.com slash passwords. Um, you don't see anything. Uh, uh, exactly. Yeah. Because I, and it, is, it is aliased to an any.dll URL that invokes the code to display the perfect passwords page, but users don't see it. It's also just cleaner. Yeah. You, you, uh, the guy who uh, invented, Tim Berners-Lee, the guy who invented the World Wide Web, said he had never intended for URLs to be visible by the end users. <laughs> you know, those are always machine readable. And he just never thought that people would actually have to type in HTTP colon slash slash. He just didn't expect that. Yep. So it wasn't designed for humans. Wells B. Goodrich. Love that name. Wells B. Goodrich in Santa Cruz, California. He wants stealth with his NAT. Hi, Steve. Recently, I purchased an Airport Extreme 802.11 Wi-Fi base station from Apple. After installation and configuration, uh, where I chose to enable enable the uh, NAT firewall, I tested the security using Shields Up. To my dismay, the all-service ports test indicated that there were ports closed but not stealth. No possible configuration could change that result. I've owned several routers with NAT firewalls built in. My computers, one PC and three Macs, a tiny LAN, have always tested stealth in the past. Do you want want to explain what stealth and closed is real quickly, or should I go on? Uh, let, let, let's finish first, okay. then I'll go back. I'm not particularly technically astute, but having my LAN hidden from the larger Internet universe always provided me with a sense of security. As I couldn't get a stealth status using your grid scan, I stopped using the Airport Extreme in favor of a D-Link broadband gigabit gaming router, which is a very good router. I use that as well. And an Airport Express for my Wi-Fi needs, including printing. So he basically has two routers. This arrangement has once more restored my stealth mode Question is, if the Apple Airport Extreme truly includes a NAT firewall, why did the ports only read closed? Was I overly paranoid to mistrust the Airport Extreme's insecurity based on the results of the Shields Up test? Thank you for your work with Leo creating security now. Since my discovery of the program about eight months ago, I haven't missed an episode, even though I'm primarily a Mac user, and some of your subjects are sufficiently arcane that they may as well be spoken in Klingon. In spite of those limitations, I gain a great deal by listening. Oh, one more thing. Spin right for the Mac, please. <laughs> okay, so this is actually a little controversial. That is to say, there isn't universal agreement, especially among the old bearded Unix guru folk, that stealth has any value. Mm-hmm. And you'll see this in... You know, postings, you know, I mean, I'll, 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 when I'm roaming around the net looking at, you know, DSL reports or, or, or something, somebody will say, hey, I wasn't all stealth at GRC. Go, and bah. some curmudgeon, right, will say, ah, that's a crock. You don't, you know, there's, you, you, don't cr- you created this notion, though, of open, closed and stealth, right? I coined the term stealth as far as I know. I don't know that there was any, any real concept of it before. Right. So. The fact is, anything that is stealth is technically breaking the rules. Oh. Any, any TCP IP stack, by definition, should, for example, respond to a ping, because that's what ping is for. It's for Internet engineers right. who, who need to ping things to verify that packets are able to get there and get back. So it's really useful to be able to ping. Let's, again, let's explain. 
a, a port is a connection between the outside world and your computer. You could think of it as a socket. You think of it as a handshake. It's a, a highway. It's a path between your computer and the outside world. There are many ports, 65,000 some ports that you can use. If a port is has a service at the, uh, at the other end of it, let's say I have a web server running, and you say hello to that port, it'll say hello back. What would you, what would you like today? It'll say, yeah. If there's nothing running on it, you have kind of two choices. That's open, by the way. If there's nothing running on it, it could be closed. It could just say, hey, I'm here, but I don't do anything at that port. Or it could say nothing. That's stealth, right? It just doesn't respond at all. Exactly. The idea for a, a TCP port, which is really the only one that will necessarily respond, when you attempt to to make a TCP connection, which is what like web and email and many of the most common services use, you, if you attempt to connect to a port where there is no service listening for connections, mm-hmm. by, again, by definition, by RFC formal re- regulations, that you should get a, a reset back saying this, this port is not open. You, you, mean you, you should be actively told that you, you, have, you have found a machine at this IP address, right. but it does not have that TCP port open. And similarly, uh, if you ping using a protocol called ICMP, um, the, the ping you should get back should say, oh, there, you know, there is a machine or there isn't. So what, what stealthing is, is a breaking of the rules. It is a deliberate breaking saying, if somebody tries to connect to a closed port, we're going to just drop the packet. We're not going to affirmatively respond that, hi, we're here, but that door is closed. We're just going to, we're going to say nothing as if the package just went off into the, you know, yonder. Why would I want to and, do that? Well, because it's, I, I mentioned before that it's very useful for Internet engineers who are wearing white hats. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's also very useful for, for hackers who are wearing black hats. They're looking for machines. Exactly. It, it confirms that there is a machine available at that location. Now, so that's so, important. That just because there's an IP address doesn't mean there's something at that IP address. Well, because, yes, there are 4 billion IP addresses. Right. And you have no idea if when you send stuff to a given IP address if it's going anywhere. Right. Is it actually hitting a machine or not? If the machine obeys all the rules, any machine will respond and says, hey, you found me, but... You know, ping, and it'll respond with a ping, or it'll say, "Oh, that port's closed. Try again. <laughs> Guess again. Try, try. Guess oh, I, again. I, I, I have sixty-five, five, three, five ports. Maybe one of them is open. You know, exactly. Guess again. So, so I argue that yes, I'm not saying that it's increasing your security. I'm saying, and and, and you could argue that it's security by obscurity, and I'm saying sure. It's more secure right. to be hidden than not. It's pretty so, good obscurity. If, if there's no response, there's no way a hacker could tell that there's anything there, right? Unless he knocks on your door and says, can I see what your IP address is? There is no way. Right. The, packet, the packets hit and they die. And that's why typically NAT routers are stealth. And in fact, I'm 
and Shields up in GRC are sub- significantly responsible for Nat Router's being stealth because there were there were initially lots of holes where like Nat Routers would respond with a right. ping right. or they would say their ports are closed and I you know we popularize this idea that hey why not just be stealth because stealth is better now I and, just did shields up on my system and it's all green all stealth but I still failed because I respond to a ping yep why would I not want to respond to a ping same reason well, right yeah, because you're responding to a ping, therefore somebody knows there's something there. And so that that you could argue that it, it heightens a malicious person's interest. Or say they wanted to know, say that, I mean, it's giving away information. It's, uh, you know, like for no reason. Like maybe they want to know if you're there, if your machine is on, right. when you're on vacation, because then, you know, then then they can go over and break a window. <sighs> I mean, the point is better just to say nothing, right. better just to be absolutely an enigma than to say, oh, good guess. You got a live IP. <laughs> I should. This is the, by the way, the Comcast router default configuration. Uh, and I will go in there and I will turn that off. How do you turn off ping? Uh, you, it, it varies. There's no universal way. But normally it'll be like. There'll be some WAN side, WAN as opposed to LAN, right. WAN meaning wide area network. There'll be some WAN configuration where you can typically say, you know, it'll say like, you know, disable ICMP, right. WAN side ICMP, or it might say, you know, respond to pings or right. something. Right. And the good news is most routers now default off. Otherwise, people complain right. because they go to security now and then they they say, hey, I'm not stealth. I want right. to be stealth. Right. And, as, and I say, why not? Why not? There's no reason. Yes. And so so to, to answer Wells' question, there's nothing arguably insecure about that, the fact that Apple's Airport Extreme, and this is a well-known characteristic of the Apple Airport Which Extreme. Which port is it? Is it the ident port that it turns on? No, it's it's all of them. All it of them. comes they all come up as closed really? as opposed it just it responds by the book. It responds to pings. It responds to attempts to open a port by saying this port is closed. So it could easily just say nothing. But for whatever reason, that's not what they chose. And worse, they don't give you a way to change it. Right. Which, Which, you know, seems dumb. That that at least you should offer that as an option for somebody. Because people want it. Again, I'm not saying it makes you more secure. I'm just saying. and, And again, the old Unix you know, curmudgeons who say, oh, that's a, it's br- against the rules not to respond. It's like, OK, yeah, fine. So, well, know, that makes sense in a in a uh, gentle, benign world where there were reasons why you might want to look at the topology of this of the network or whatever. And I'm glad that Yahoo and Google still allow pings because I use it to test to see if I'm up. But oh, uh, <laughs> and, and within my own land network, I'm pinging myself crazy all yeah. over the place. Well, you yeah. ping me, you ping my servers uh, to see if there's a new file for you. But yep. but but it actually was a different kind of ping. But that's fine. I mean, if you're running a server, you have open ports. That's well, and in that's, fact, you people are welcome to ping GRC if they want. I mean, right. I I have P, I've deliberately let GRC be pingable so that people who were having a connection problem couldn't bring up our pages could just ping GRC.com to see if we're there. Right. I mean, because I'm not hiding. Well, that's but different. The, you're a server. Exactly. We're a exactly. We're a big public server. Everyone right. knows where we are. Right. I'm not an end user. For example, you can't ping this famous cable modem of mine. <laughs> 
because it's just stealth. There's no reason to expose that. Shouldn't be able to. Yep. Gary Warner, who is the director of research at UAB Computer Forensics. Ooh. Wow. We've got some biggies listening. Cautions about certificate dangers. Steve, I thought you might enjoy seeing an example of one of the dangers that I'm concerned with regarding extended certificates. If we train users, that's those, we, we've talked a lot about extended certificates. We just talked earlier on the show about it. That's the green bar you get on Firefox and Internet Explorer 7 when you go to a site that has a special certificate that goes to extra lengths to identify them. He says there's a problem. He says if we train users that, quote, green bars are safe, we still haven't fixed a primary problem that webmasters ignore security. Now, you actually mentioned something that proved this with PayPal. My team at the University of Alabama at Birmingham looked at more than 15,000 phishing sites in the first quarter of 2008. Okay, the fact that there are even 15,000 phishing sites, I mean, there, there's a problem right there. Amazing. Oh. And, and they're pulled down the minute people discover them. So uh, just that just shows you how they proliferate. What started as a very occasional thing is now happening at least on a weekly basis. Phishing sites are running on sites with valid certificates. Most are on hacked servers where, for example, a web store is broken into and a phishing site is placed on their SSL certified site. We're actually also seeing situations now where the criminals are buying certificates. Will the high cost of a certificate provide a disincentive to cr- criminals registering an unrelated company than using it for phishing? <laughs> Absolutely not. They're, not even, they're using stolen funds to pay for it anyway. The certificate says, quote, we have documentation that a company... Owning this site exists. It doesn't say the bank login content on this web page corresponds to the company that registered this website. So they could have a certificate that says, yes, we're badguys.com and have the site look like bankofamerica.com. I just wanted to point out that making certificates harder to get and training users to trust them won't cure all of tomorrow's problems. Thanks for all you do. I've been a fan since your Tech Talk columns way back in InfoWorld. I even bought your Passion for Technology books when they were published. So I thought this was a, a perfect, a perfect illustration of what we were talking about before. It is, it is important that, that we be clear about what it is that extended validation means. It, it means that, that the company that acquired the certificate was much more thoroughly vetted than just somebody getting a random SSL certificate. Mm. So, you know, that's what the certificate authority is vouching for. You know, VeriSign issuing a certificate to Gibson Research Corp has has verified, you know, my identity, our corporate address, our, our that our corporation is is a company in good standing, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they're doing all this work to say that, you know, for me to get the green bar, they've really checked us out right but but it says nothing about my you know my company's security practices you know am i encrypting all of my e-commerce data well yes i am every single node of my b tree is encrypted right. so you know i mean I'm, I'm going over the top but that's not what that certificate says so so it's it's important that people understand that all it all it is asserting is the identity of the company that obtained the certificate, nothing more. And, you nothing know, no- I think most users are going to look at that green bar and say, oh, green means safe, and they mean yeah. safe, not yeah. green means I've identified this as a person. Yeah. 
So I, I, I think that he may, raises a very, very good point. Actually, you know that you remember, I think I made some sort of a uh, mildly disparaging comment a few weeks ago about that hacker safe certificate that's appeared on yes. all these sites all over the place. Yeah. Get, get this. It was on the PayPal page that had the cross site scripting vulnerability. Well, I don't even know what they're te- Who knows what they're testing for? Well, exactly. It's just bogus. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Kyle Hasegawa is back. He has another question from Tokyo. Good memory, good memory Leo. <laughs> he has a, I don't forget names like Kyle Hasegawa. He has a quick fix for really dead hard drives. Hi, Stephen Leo. In episode 145, you mentioned there are some hard drive problems even the mighty Spinrite cannot fix. Those, of course, being hardware failures. You also said that once a hardware failure occurs, you'll have to spend thousands of dollars to have data recovery professionals dismantle the drive and extract your data. Well, here's a cool trick that has worked for me. And it only costs you the price of another drive. I must warn you, this is a last resort and should only be done if software repair attempts are futile and you're not willing to spend thousands of dollars. What he's saying is by doing this, you're making it impossible to fix if it doesn't work. The trick is to locate a drive that's exactly the same as yours. Matching the model number is imperative, but matching the production code is even better. Carefully (laughs) remove the PCB, that's the, the circuit board, Print a circuit board from your dead drive and replace it with a new drives board. If your old hard drive's problem was the PCB cord board, you're you're good to go. If not, well, you're no worse than before and you're out a few bucks. Thanks for the great show. I thought that was worth mentioning. Yeah. Because it is a it's a midpoint in between, you know, running Spinrite and and hoping that Spinrite's gonna be able to do the job and forking over twenty five hundred dollars to a drive savers group. And you know, you mentioned how, something that I also know, and that is that these drive recovery companies, they have inventories of old drives just for this purpose. They've got parts. I mean, yes, exactly. Because, you know, they need, if it's a PCB that is fried right. and just cha- swapping out the, the printed circuit board with a good one will allow them to pull the data off. You know, they, they don't have to, you know, they're not giving you their PCB. They're just giving you the data. So they'll they'll move a, an equivalent printer circuit board, you know, the motherboard of the drive onto the bottom carriage of the drive, suck all the data off, then put that PCB back into their inventory for the next time it happens. Now, now the fact is when you consider all the complexity of the hardware in the drive, it is statistically far more likely to be a problem in the enclosure, that is, the, the heads and platters and so forth, especially because, you know, drives are often dropped and the heads are bouncing around on the platters. So so I, I, I would say, you know, it's certainly, if, if it's feasible for you to swap the, the PCB, do so. Especially, many people will buy a couple copies of the same drive at the same time. So you may have a machine with... You know, this, you know, with the same printed circuit board, because you've got two drives at the same time, one of them died. It's certainly worth giving that a try if you're comfortable with, you know, swapping printed circuit boards on the bottom of hard drives. Right. My, my sense is it's probably not going to give you the, the, the leverage that you could count on that happening. But it's a really nice compromise between just using software and, you know, spending literally thousands of dollars. I, I, it's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, Kyle. Thank you. Yeah, very good idea. Do you have to desolder the board, to, the, the PCB to replace it, or is it just socketed in there? I've never seen one that you had to desolder. Normally, they are, there are 
there's a, a flat cable coming around and you can pull the flat cable off or, or very oh, often cool. now you'll, you'll see pins sticking up through a, a connector. And so if you pull the board, sort of wiggle it back and forth, but pull it directly away from the drive, oh. it'll just unplug very, oh, very cool. cleanly because, of course, they, the reverse of that happens during manufacture. Yeah, they want to be able to put it in easily. Exactly. Bob J. in Claremont, California has a really bad router. Hi, guys. Verizon recently changed my system to their Action Tech modem router. It fails the Shields Up test by responding to a ping. Oh, it's funny that my uh-huh. Comcast does that, too. Something my Linksys router never did. It also exposes its homepage, which shows my network setup to the world. Oh, boy. Uh-huh. I typed in the public IP, and it pulls up the router's homepage with all the information. Granted, I'm using a strong password, but I hate this thing. I called Verizon, and their assistant wa- assistance was, well useless any suggestions i can can i disable the nat on the verizon router and go back to using the Linksys? i've been listening since the beginning thanks for the great information a lot of isps are doing this now comcast did it to us too the cable modem or the dsl modem is built into a router so you have to use their router yep okay first thing the fact that he typed in the public ip and he got the router's homepage that it's in itself does not guarantee that that homepage is available from the WAM side. Oh, he has to do it from home or somewhere else. He has, yes, he's got to get a friend of his, somebody right. he trusts, to, you know, while he's on the phone with him or while that IP is the same, to type it in from outside right. and see whether that page comes up. There is a characteristic of some routers that, and not all routers, that that if you... That if you you are able to get to them not only using the 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 so-called gateway IP, which is your private IP inside the network, typically 192.168. you know zero or dot one something, but you can also sometimes get to the same you know essentially the same thing using the router's public IP, but only from inside. So it may very well be, and I hope that. It is the case that from the outside, it is not exposing its configuration page. And if it is, many routers give you the option, again, in a WAN configuration page, W-A-N, to disable what they will call WAN administration. You absolutely want to have WAN administration disabled. You don't even want to expose a login page because someone could just sit there and pound on your login over and over and over doing a brute force attack until they get in. And that's that is not something you want to allow to have happen. Yeah. Yeah. So disable WAN management. You certainly, it shouldn't pop up a page uh, if it does. And uh, you should have a password on the darn thing. So make sure you, you put a password, change the name of the router. If it's a wireless router, um, all of those things are very important to do. And also while you're at it, tell it not to respond to pings. If that's a configuration option. Right. Now, if, None of that is possible. Well, if, if at least it's not possible to tell not to respond to pings, you can still put your Linksys router behind it. That is, have it there out in front, and then your Linksys router. And so, you know, you want to bolt that public face down as much as you can. If, you, if there's an admin page, tell it not to respond to ping, use a, a, you know, a username and password and so forth. 
but still you could put you could plug it into your Linksys router and use your Linksys router. So you're then you've got all of the Linksys's security, and we know that that could be bolted down tight. Excellent. Cake Man from Malaysia has a bone to pick with us, and I'm going to let him do that in just a minute. But first, I want to mention the fine folks at Astaro who have kindly sponsored this podcast for two out of its three years. And they have no bones to pick with us. No bones to pick with us. We have no bones to pick with them. Astaro makes the great Astaro security gateway. If you are a small or medium business and you need superior protection for your network from spam, from viruses, from hackers, you get complete VPN capabilities, including SSL VPN, which makes it very easy for your users. You get intrusion protection. You get content filtering, complete control over instant messaging, peer-to-peer, all of that stuff. An industrial-strength firewall. All in a simple, easy-to-use, high-performance appliance. One that can grow with you as you grow up to uh, nine or ten of them without additional load balancing. I mean, this is an amazing device. I want you to contact Astaro at astaro.com. I should show you mine. We haven't, you know, what, do, what does it look like? And you can see it's really it's about the size and shape of a router. Not, I like it, though. It's a nice metal box. It's really secure and strong. Um, this is an amazing device. The Astaro Security Gateway. In this little box, I've got all the protection I need. For my whole corporate network. I want to put it on the uh, cable modem. That way uh, I can let people use my, my cable modem and not have to worry, <laughs> worry about it. ASTARO.com or uh, call 877, the number 4, ASTARO. You could schedule a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway in your uh, business. They also have a web gateway now, which is very cool. They really are the kings of all this. It's the best in class open source and commercial software. All in one simple, easy-to-use box. By the way, if you're a non-commercial uh, user, you can also try it uh, for free, including all the updates at uh, astaro.com slash security now. I just love this. And also, it's got a mount, so I can put it on the wall like that. I just really think it's a nicely designed box. ASTARO.com or call 877-4ASTARO for a free trial in your business. We thank Astaro so much for their support of security now. Are you ready to have your bone picked? Oh, yes. Pick away. <laughs> Cake Man in Malaysia says there is potential, uh, a potential problem in using one of those uh, Linux uh, boot disks that we talked about. Because I like this idea. He says on Security Now, episode 142, you recommended the use of a live Linux CD to access questionable websites or other risky activities. I'm not sure this is a good idea. It's true that I can use, for example, the uh, fresh Hardy Heron live CD, the Ubuntu that just came out for online banking. However, as time goes by, and this is a very good point, there will surely be security holes and vulnerabilities found in this live CD. But by that time, uh, I might be vulnerable. Unless I can build an up-to-date live CD, I wouldn't use it for that purpose. I might be wrong, but you can, can you clear my doubt on that? Thank you. <laughs> well, <laughs> can you say open SSL vulnerability? Perfect example. Yep. Perfect yep. example. Yep. As you said, that's the new Ubuntu. And unless it's as new as, as you know, a week ago, it may very well have the vulnerable OpenSSL um, uh, pseudorandom number generator that's been in place since September of 06. Now, the point is, if you install it on a hard drive, it has automatic updates, just like Windows or Mac, so it will be fixed. But a CD can't be updated. Yep. So I think that's, you know, I, when, when when we were answering the question um, by our listener who was going to be using remote access to help other people with their machines, one of the things I was going to say, you know, I talked about, you know, running 
that in a VM, an alternative That's would be, for example, if yeah. you're if you're using um, VNC that is multi-platform, you could use VNC on a Linux boot CD, and again, be very safe. As as we said when we were talking about this before, as long as your drives were not available, then I mean, you're you're really working with belt and suspenders security there. Right. right. But but so Cake Man's point is good. If your live CD is old, that would be bad. Right. So it probably makes sense to you know to to keep it fresh and and not use it for a long period of time because at some point there will be known vulnerabilities there. I guess the point is bad. How uh, certainly not bad in the sense that uh, your your disk could be modified because it can't, and so you're safe in the sense that you know you're not going to have a virus or spyware get on there. But you but your network is vulnerable, and if you if you're vulnerable and you type a uh, bank login at that moment, then they could be capturing what you're doing. So you're it's bad in that sense. Yep. Yeah. Steve, we've run out of time and run out of questions. I think it's time to say goodbye. <laughs> well, and isn't it nice that those two things happen at the same time? <laughs> well, the nice thing about a podcast is that we just go until we're done. So next week, what do you? What is on tap? What are you? What are you planning for us? Uh, I've got a whole bunch of topics. I'm going to have to choose one, so I don't know yet. Oh, that'll be fun. Uh, yeah. People can participate, uh, of course, by going to your website, grc.com slash security. Now, when you're there, you'll see there are transcripts of every show. Uh, there is a 16 kilobit version of every show. So if you have, you know, need a smaller file, if you're bandwidth impaired or whatever, you can get it there. He, Steve puts great show notes up so you can read along and click links and so forth. It's all there at grc.com slash security. Now, while you're there, take a look at Shields Up. We were just talking about that and many other free programs Steve's offers to help you lock your system down, fix bugs, fix problems with Windows, it, it, even just simple utilities like Wismo that are just fun to have. They're all free at grc.com. But don't forget, his bread and butter, and everybody should own a copy, just if if only to keep Steve doing this show, it's <laughs> SpinRite, S-P-I-N-R-I-T-E. It is the ultimate hard drive maintenance utility, a recovery tool everybody will want. Uh, it's just a really great program. I'm glad I have a copy in my toolkit. When Andy Don came, of course, the first thing I do is I spin right the drive. Uh, you'll find it all at GRC.com. Steve, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time on Security Now. Righto. Security Now.